Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Once again, I find myself at a moral crossroads, and I'm I'm turning to you to help uh, me work through it, if that's okay. I think the last time this happened, I had serious reservations about ranking our fellow humans during the top 100 process and you were able Uh to continue or you know to urge me to continue doing it and I made it through the other side just fine this time though it has to do with the NBA scoring boom and I'm sure you've noticed that everyone has turned into an Andrew Sharp bucket getter this season all these teams are putting up 130 140. I believe the Pelicans put up 149 points. And yes, it was against the Sacramento Kings, but still it counts. Uh, They are technically an NBA team. Uh, And it's just leading to a real crisis of confidence for me here because for years, I would lecture you up from my high horse and say, look, you've got to embrace this smart new style of basketball. Golden State Warriors have just cracked the code. The Houston Rockets know all the most efficient shots and where they should be taken from. Uh, anyone who says, oh, it's it's a gimmick or uh, this doesn't really remind me of the basketball I grew up with uh, is just uh-huh. living in the dark ages. But Andrew, uh, I regret to inform you, I may be slipping towards that dark side because... I don't know what I'm watching out here. The average scoring through the first week of the NBA season is 112.9 points per game. Just for context, as recently as 2015, it was 100. As recently as like 2004, it was at 93.4. It's a completely different game. It's not just the best teams that are, you know, going for this pace and space style. It's basically everyone. These new freedom of movement rules have made it very, very difficult for defenders to do anything off the ball without fouling. And I'm just wondering, have you hit your breaking point or have you just kind of laid back and said, bring it on. I want as much offense and scoring as we can possibly have. I'm never going to get tired of it. Um, It's a good question. I want to make clear that I have always loved the Warriors and have never been sitting here complaining about what they do on offense. Their their offense is beautiful when it all clicks. The Rockets are the team that I have likened to a cake that is made entirely out of icing and where eventually your eyes just kind of glaze over watching them. Uh, And, I, you know, I think we're going to hit a tipping point and... I'm glad you raised it because it's been a little disorienting through the first week of games. It feels like 50 different guys are averaging 25 points a game and everybody's scoring in the 120s and 130s. And I just don't know how much of this is real or whether it's a blip as everybody kind of shakes off the rust because everything's starting earlier than it ever has. And maybe things will begin to normalize over the next few weeks, but it's definitely something to monitor. The advanced stat nerds, though, real quick, they always say, like, if you went through that first week, if sample was in, usually that's pretty close to what happens, right? So we're not going to expect some huge major tail off. And I think when you're looking at the lineups teams are playing, you know, everybody's basically playing four out and sometimes five out now. Uh, You know, you're seeing fewer and fewer, you know, teams really having two traditional centers in their rotations, right? Like you have a big lineup and then they wind up going small. We're seeing teams across the league go super small late in games. Uh, We're seeing lots of teams, you know, play power forwards or even small forwards at center at various points. And so 
I feel like they already made their strategic decisions during the offseason, and this is what we're left with. Yeah. Well, can I shift gears for a second? Because when you began this talking about a moral quandary, I thought you were going to talk about last night's Lakers game, Spurs-Lakers, where, you know, you've become Mr. Laker over the last month or so. You've been at every single game. You're our, our official Lakers correspondent for Sports Illustrated. And yet, your guy, Patty Mills, the beating heart of a dynasty that refuses to disappear, hits the game winner and breaks everyone's heart in L.A. last night. I thought that was the moment that sort of tore you in two different directions. Well, Andrew, this is what triggered it. The game was 143 to 142. (laughs) And this is what I'm saying. So it's like... I look at these amazing stat lines, Giannis, every night. It's like 30 and 15. Anthony Davis, I think he's breaking calculators in New Orleans. Uh, yep. I mean, LeBron had four points in the first half. He winds up almost having like a 35-point triple-double by the end of the game, uh, despite the missed free throws, which he called unacceptable, and everything else. You look at San Antonio, and we're here all offseason saying, oh, what a slog it is going to be to watch the Spurs. Just a bunch of tough twos. They put <laughs> they put up 143 light, and Bryn Forbes is out there looking like a third Curry brother. This is what I mean, and it kind of reminds me back when I was growing up, the guy who uh-huh. would always just sort of represent like the 80s scoring boom to me was Fat Lever. You know, he was like that guy who you looked in the, the statistic books, and it's like, man, this guy had like dozens, if not hundreds of triple doubles. Like he <laughs> yeah, must have been totally. unbelievable. And then you ask like somebody who actually watched basketball from that era. And they're like, guys, like, come on, don't get too excited. And I think he might've just recently got his Jersey retired almost out of pity from the nuggets. Uh, might need to fact check that fact check that one. But um, I don't want all these stars of today's era to be viewed as a bunch of fat levers, Andrew. That's what I'm concerned about. Like, are people going to look at this era of basketball now it's gotten just so crazy as kind of like the juice ball era. Is there going to be an asterisk next to some of these guys' numbers because uh, it's just so inflated? No, I don't think that's how it's going to happen. I think it's more likely that this is just how basketball is going to look for the next 50 years. And what is ultimately going to happen is we're going to look back at the 90s, like blood sport era of the NBA and look at that as the outlier. And, uh, I think it's a more fun direction to take things. I, I share some of your concerns, um, but I'm not going to let you conflate a league-wide trend with what's happening with the Lakers because I think a lot of teams are going to score 130 against LA, and that's more of a Lakers problem than an NBA issue. Well, there's no doubt, and when I look at the Lakers, it's kind of what we've been hoping for, uh, you know, in terms of utilizing LeBron for years, right? It's like, why do we have to do this, like, slow down, ground style? Okay, cool. He can, like, have these little dump off passes to Tristan Thompson. Fantastic. Well, now it's, like, wide open, up and down the court. I mean, he seems like he's running himself, in some cases, you know, to exhaustion by the end of these games. Like, he, he's just not used to playing as fast as he's playing. It's easily the fastest he's ever played in his career and it's producing yeah. just spectacular highlights you know uh, up and down the court uh, but then I'm I'm sitting there thinking like is this most entertaining version of LeBron also like the least substantial version of LeBron like going back to your ice cream cake metaphor is this ice cream cake LeBron is that what we're getting and 
Is that what we want from LeBron at this point? Do we want this to just be a spectacle, or do we want them to be something more? Well, let's talk about everything, okay? I'm going to start with a question here uh, because I think that's one area to hit, but we haven't really talked about the Lakers so far this season, and they're now sitting at 0-3. So Nick says, everyone is going to send you emails about the Lakers and how they're going to miss the playoffs and that they should burn down the stadium, but I have a different thought. They just hung with the Rockets and Blazers in fairly close games. Both of those teams finished at the top of the West last year, and last year's Lakers weren't doing that. So that email came in before the loss to San Antonio, and that's about as glass half full as you could get with the Lakers right now. But just in general, we've talked about easy takes in the past few episodes, And I think the easiest Lakers take right now is to say everyone should just be patient and it's way too early to draw conclusions. And LeBron started slow in Miami. He started slow in Cleveland and this is going to work out. Um, I feel like that's been the predominant response so far among smart basketball people, but it's sort of a cop-out in my mind. So uh, apart from questions about LeBron and the best way to use him and the best way to play just like what do you think you've been at each of these games what do you think of what you've seen so far well my first takeaway is that you know everybody who got exhausted by the LeBron experience in Cleveland I get uh-huh. I get it now three games in <laughs> Andrew it feels like 30 games and I mean the the opening night again game against Portland where they have that dunk 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 sequence it's like oh my goodness like this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to basketball. Then they drop that one. Then they get into an ultimate fracas with Houston that gets very, very personal on and off the court be- between some of the NBA's sort of biggest stars, right? Yeah. And then they come back and play this crazy overtime game where at the end of regulation, they go on an 8-0 run in 64 seconds, only to, fall- incredible. <laughs> only to follow that up by giving up a 7-0 run in overtime in the final 51 seconds. It was just like, can we snatch uh, you know defeat from the jaws of victory or vice versa in the the same game it was ridiculous um yeah they're exhausting they are incredibly entertaining you cannot take your eyes off them like i i there's this on-running trope about oh sports writers these days when they go to the games they're just staying staring at their laptops watching twitter the whole time like the right. Lake the lakers you don't do that the lakers your well, eyes are glued you're not blinking you need to get some visine because they're like drying out after two hours of just like intensely staring at these guys because at any moment something insane could happen I'm glad you mentioned that because we've gotten people who have complained over the last month or so about talking about the Lakers too much. And I understand where they may be coming from. But at the same time, this team is just fascinating. (laughs) Like it's not because it's LA. It's not even totally because it's LeBron. It's just the dynamics out there but that adds to it too though doesn't that add to it when like the chili pepper singer is getting thrown out of a game because he flipped off the rockets i mean (laughs) it does add a layer to it it's not like the main part you know like the main part is definitely lebron struggling with this crazy cast of teammates and like lance stevenson throwing away some of the worst turnovers you're ever going to see and like lonzo having these incredible flashes of like wow he could really be the guy everyone hopes for and then he has this crazy defensive lapse on the patty mill shot you mentioned earlier 
earlier, just like the ups and downs. Brandon Ingram, you know, your nephew, looking yeah. like, all right, he's going to be this number two guy. And then next thing you know, I mean, he's just throwing haymakers and he's going to be out for <laughs> you know two weeks. There is just a lot. And this is what I mean by it being exhausting. There's just so much going on. And I guess the big takeaway for me from the first week, getting back to the expectations question that you're you're asking is, with so much going on, what are the odds that they can stabilize this thing well enough to really make a postseason, uh, you know, impact? And yeah. I look at teams, especially Denver, who we had talked about, but Golden State, Houston. I think Portland's had a pretty nice start to the season, even though they dropped one. Uh, I forget who'd they lose to. Uh, some Eastern <laughs> Conference team that's you know not really that important. You I, know what? I was on my own personal Lakers roller coaster watching Wizards Blazers at one a.m. in D.C. last night. But we'll get to that at the end. But yeah, I. I mean, I hear you on every front because it does look exhausting. Uh, I loved watching Lakers Spurs. My two favorite things coming out of Lakers Spurs were, number one, as soon as LeBron James missed those two free throws, Sam Esfandiari, our friend and eternal LeBron troll, immediately tweeted a video of Kobe hitting two free throws on a torn Achilles, which was perfect. And then I also just loved imagining you surrounded by despondent Lakers fans beaming with pride over the valiant game winner from Patty Mills. Um, but in general, all of this looks like a mess. And I do, I do appreciate the Lakers, though, because I think we would be having a, a different conversation had the Lakers from the first quarter of that Spurs game been the Lakers we saw all last night because they were just getting run off the floor by San Antonio at the start of that game. And I, I don't even know what the, the margin was at the end of the first, but like no, they, I'm sure the Spurs had 40 points in the first quarter, and it was ridiculous. But, the, but then, like you said, L.A. will have these stretches where it does click, and they do look basically unguardable on offense— and you see why people were excited about this team. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, not only will Patty Mills prevent you, Andrew Sharp, from dribbling up the court, he will drill a game winner right in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> but I think just to tie off my point from earlier, the stability factor is so key because we're seeing a bunch of teams in the West, teams that were like maybe on that fringe conversation. Are they going to be ready to rock? Are they going to take a step back this year? coming out and looking very stable and being able to establish that stability is going to take a while. And then the question is how big of a hole are the Lakers digging out of here uh, before yeah. it starts to get pretty dicey. And then, you know, if they are playing catch up, what buttons can they push, right? Can they trade for a center? Uh, you know, can they jettison some of these guys from the summer who just haven't worked out? Um, you know, what are their moves? To, to me, it, it, these kinds of questions are already coming uh, you know, kind of materializing on the horizon. But the other thing I'd say, too, in terms of why a lot of people are saying be patient, give them time, they did play three good teams to start the season, right? Like if they had had these same performances against like Chicago, Orlando, and somebody else, that's one thing. But I mean, going to Portland, you're never going to win there on opening night. Uh, you know, San Antonio, they looked very steady and solid and knew exactly what they wanted to do against uh, the Lakers defense. They came out gunning and then just their shot quality all night. They were getting mm -hmm. exactly where they wanted to get uh, with that very typical Spurs style execution. LaMarcus was just beasting. DeMar had a really nice night. 
uh, and, and kind of right on down the list. I mean, basically everybody was lighting them up. So uh, I'm still in the camp, even if you consider it an easy stake uh, of being patient here uh, for the next week or two. Let these uh, guys come yeah. back from their suspensions and see where it uh, stands. But I mean, ultimately they're zero and three. The Thunder are zero and three. By the way, the teams on the SI covers are now a combined two and eight <laughs> to start the season. <laughs> I don't know if which are we taking credit. Listen, I'm not going to lie. That was the one silver lining with having to write my first ever SI cover story starring Gordon Hayward and Al Horford. It's like, look, this may be the ultimate act of treason, but it's also a pretty comprehensive jinx strategy with the Celtics. And if that's the way it plays out, I am glad to take credit for it, you know? (laughs) But on the Lakers and on patience here, I have one question for you. Like, how how engaged do you think LeBron is right now? Because remember back in the playoffs, he would talk about game ones as sort of like his feel-out game. Um, and I, maybe he was talking about the first half, or I think, he, I think he was talking about entire playoff games as his feel-out games. But it kind of feels like this is a feel-out month for him because... As crazy as some of the emotional swings have been for that team, LeBron doesn't seem to be riding those waves. And even last night, you know, like they lost and he was very matter of fact about everything. And it's kind of strange to see how detached he is right now. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's detached. I think he's trying to basically be forced stability just from him. You know, I think he's trying not to like, you know, lean into the crazy media coverage. I mean, look, his scrum was so big at the home opener that they had to move it into a hallway, which I've never seen before. And there was something like 250 media members credentialed for the first game. And I think his scrum probably had 100 people around him. So when Uh you're being surrounded by that kind of storm, and you know, yeah, like every word you say, reaction. yeah, every word you say is going to get right back to the young players. You're just going to try to be as flat as possible. I mean, I think obviously he enjoyed hitting that game tying three pointer. It wasn't like he was calm and reserved then. You know, he's running around with his little finger guns and like you know pointing at all the the fans in the stands and and really like soaking it up. So I think that the um, the energy and the you know the leadership is there, kind of on and off the court. I guess mm-hmm. one thing I'm wondering about though, Andrew is the legs, right? I mean, they're playing very fast. Uh, in the first couple of games, the Lakers, you know, just started really fast and then seemed to like maybe tail off a little bit pace-wise towards the end of the game. Uh, and yep. in both cases, LeBron didn't necessarily close super fast. Uh, you know, against San Antonio, it was a very frantic, hectic comeback. Uh, LeBron was obviously right in the middle of that, but they had started so slow. I think he kind of came out after halftime, you know, looking to prove a point because I think he only had four points in the first half. Uh, yeah. That's something to watch here. We're three games in. There are seventy nine to go, right? Like, how how long can they play this breakneck speed, and how long can LeBron function successfully in this breakneck speed before he decides, okay, you know, certain situations, I want to slow this thing down. Yeah. I, the other thing I would add on that front is that in both the Houston game and the Blazers game, there were threes given up late where LeBron was flat-footed and just kind of spaced out on defense. And I know a lot of people have focused on LeBron's defense since he moved to L.A., and I've been one of them who said, look, like he's not the same guy in that end. Um, but that, And not every Lakers game is going to be a one-possession game in the final two minutes where like a play like that 
really makes a big difference. But um, but those have happened already, and so that's going to be interesting to watch too. Because when you only have three or four guys capable of playing good defense, like LeBron's defense is going to matter even more. And um, no. it's I don't very, know, man. It's very similar to Cleveland last year. I mean, they had a lot of the same issues. Like he's not going to rotate out and chase shooters, especially when they're playing small yes. lineups. So he's fighting you know, for rebounds and a couple possessions, you know, he's trying to body up with LaMarcus Aldridge. I mean, you know, expecting him to like run out and chase Bryn Forbes off the three-point line, that's just not going to happen. And I think his teammates are going to have to adjust to that. But you're right to point out that they don't really have the cohesiveness as a team defense, but then also just the individual defenders to execute those types of things. And they're giving up really good shots time after time. And you know what? I mean, Jonathan Williams, a guy I had never heard of before last night in L.A., was really helpful for them. And I think, obviously, credit to Jonathan Williams, but that's also a commentary on the guys they brought in this summer. It's like, you know, maybe instead of signing Lance Stevenson and Michael Beasley, getting a guy, you know, getting a James Ennis or someone like that, would have been really helpful. They need credible NBA players to fill out this rotation. And for some reason, they didn't go that direction this summer. And uh, it hurts because there are the outlines of a really good, fun team here, but they've just kind of whiffed on some of the rotation pieces. And I mean, this is something I said a month ago, but like it's already clear after the first week, the young guys need to be playing twice as many minutes as everyone they signed this summer. And, like, Luke hasn't quite made that shift yet. It seems like he's leaning more on the young guys than he he was in game one. And obviously, like, it's early, but do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, KCP, Catavius can't play. You're looking at <laughs> their rotation, and Hart's now playing starters minutes. He's not starting, but he's he's playing huge minutes off the bench for them. He's been phenomenal. Uh, I yep. also think Kuzma getting moved into the starting lineup because uh, of the suspensions. I thought they might actually move Hart into the starting lineup in Ingram's spot and just use that as a way to kind of get KCP, you know, kind of bridge him out once Ingram came right. back. But they didn't go that route, and Kuzma delivered in a big-time way. And there's a lot of people who are saying, well, look, Kuzma actually fits pretty well with LeBron. You should not be staggering their minutes. You should be keeping them together. And I I think the San Antonio game was pretty convincing evidence of that fact. But Kuzma's been, you know, kind of up and down so far this season. So, you know, that'll be definitely something to track when these guys are still uh, out suspended. Uh, But, you know, Hart you know, to me, like he definitely should be starting. I think that's, and I think Walton is just trying to kind of play it slow with that. Like he always wants to, you know, be deferential to the veterans, but it's beyond obvious that, uh, you know, he's their, their best guard at this point. I I agree. And I'm very proud of Josh Hart. He's someone I've loved for the last two years and he's really kind of delivered through this first week. And I do think Luke has realized that he needs to close with Hart. And watching Hart, it's funny. It's hard not to imagine how much he would have helped like 10 teams that had a chance to draft him. Namely, the 76ers who took, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. He's like a Latvian 7-2 center in front of Josh Hart. (laughs) It's really like Hart is the perfect guy to slide next to Ben Simmons. Um, But... 
Yeah. The Hey, real the, quick. You, you mentioned Jonathan Williams earlier. Can I just tell uh-huh. a quick story here? Part of the reason why they had to have him in during overtime was because Zubak had five fouls in five minutes last night. And uh, JaVale, Mc, JaVale, JaVale McGee fouled out too, right? And the funny thing was, I mean, Walton came out just screaming in his postgame press conference about the fouls. And uh-huh. the only thing I could think about while he was like pointing out how many fouls they had called on them was having watched a five-on-five scrimmage during Lakers training camp where I believe it was Brian Shaw or one of the other Lakers assistants was like acting as the referee. And he also called like five fouls and like five possessions on Zubak. And like the other, the other version of the Lakers <laughs> were just like pounding the ball right at Zubak, knowing they could get him to get a foul on every single possession. And he was like looking over at the coaching staff, like, why are you calling these fouls all frustrated? And the coach was like, yeah, yeah, you fouled him. What do you want me to do? And it's like watching that play out in training camp and then two weeks later happening in the middle of this like 143, 142 overtime game was just priceless. Yeah, well, and, you know, you talk about someone like Zubak, talk about JaVale, and then you look at the way Jonathan Williams, he really did kind of change that game down the stretch and, and gave them some super valuable minutes. I mean, the best reason to continue believing in the Lakers is their ability to find one or two or maybe three more pieces like Jonathan Williams via trade, via however they want to do it. But I like I think you can get a couple more useful guys to help kind of fill out the rotation. Um, and particularly big guys, like that's got to be priority one if you're Magic and Palinka. In general... One other thought that I've had watching this game, watching this team through the first three games, it, like if Lonzo can hit threes consistently, this can really work. I mean, the defense is going to be an issue regardless, but the stretches where Lonzo is a threat to shoot, they suddenly get very scary on offense, and uh, and I think that's the another reason to be hopeful if you're a Lakers fan is like, look. If you believe in Lonzo, he's going to have every opportunity to go do it this year. Lonzo is just an amazing shooter. It's either snap the net, picture perfect three pointer, <laughs> I know. or like break the backboard or air ball. Like that's there's no in between. There's no like close misses. It's either like just an actual absolutely perfect shot or just the worst shot. And he did yeah. have a nice nice sequence there in overtime where he hits the three, LeBron trusts him, and he delivers. And then there was another one where he had a touch pass to Le- kind of like touch pass was great to free LeBron in transition. I mean, there are some very pretty moments from Lonzo playing, and I would love to see him start over Rondo too. I mean, I've been pretty hard on Rondo throughout. I mean, I think we we had to listen to all this talk about what a great leader and great mentor Rondo is in Chicago, and then again in New Orleans, and then again here in L.A., and second game out, he's spitting on a Hall of Famer. It's like, come on, man. Yes. Well, we have to talk about the fight in a minute. Um, I think Rondo would be fine leading the second unit, and that may be where Luke Walton ends up in like a month. But for right now, I think Rondo weirdly has too much capital in that locker room and with LeBron to just kind of slide him to the bench at the outset here. Uh, but eventually it may just be too obvious that the team is better with Lonzo to, yeah. to continue starting Rondo. I was going to say, I think he'd be okay running the Suns, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just bring him, bring him to Phoenix and leave him there. 
I enjoy Rondo as just being a ridiculous character from the past 10 years, but I'm not here to argue that he's still a good player. Hey, one other thing that I forgot to mention earlier about just the LeBron mania here in LA, I really want to paint this for people. So you, everyone remembers the huge billboard in Cleveland with LeBron on it, you know, right across the street from the arena, iconic, everyone would go get their pictures taken by it, right? Uh-huh. Downtown LA has this little district that's they've tried to kind of redevelop. It's called LA Live. You saw it during All-Star Weekend, but for our listeners who who uh, haven't been to LA, LA is this huge sprawling metropolis. The downtown area is sort of uh, now being redeveloped right around the arena. There's like, you know, places to go eat and, you know, music venues and and so on and so forth. They're trying to really like build on the the events that happen at Staples Center. Yep. The entire district has been turned into basically a LeBron devotional, Andrew. On the side <laughs> of the biggest skyscraper, there is a gigantic, I'm, I'm probably 40 or 50 story uh, billboard of LeBron. Uh, right. Adjacent to that, there's another one with him like cocking back and dunking. Uh, adjacent to that is like a slogan about how he's just a small town kid with big city dreams. Adjacent to that, like across the street... There is a, uh, a billboard that covers an entire Starbucks. You know, it's probably 80 feet long uh, with another, you know, kind of motivational slogan with LeBron looking up at like the Lakers banners. And then on top of that, they made a, uh, a Foot Locker pop-up shop just selling all LeBron jerseys and all LeBron shoes like right yeah. there. So before the game, if you want to dress head to toe like LeBron, there you go right there for you. And then there's another huge billboard that's put up by Beats that has LeBron in the jersey again with his Beats headphones on, which apparently was like across the street from Greg Popovich's hotel. And so he was just like saying that he basically had to wake up looking at a LeBron billboard and he wasn't feeling great about that. Um, And then during the games, though, it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen, Andrew. They had an Ice Cube narrated like Welcome to L.A. video (laughs) for LeBron. They just ran a full Nike commercial in the arena on the Jumbotron for LeBron. And then they ran a full Beats commercial starring Snoop Dogg again for LeBron during the game. So you're just basically being bombarded with LeBron salesmanship and marketing during these Lakers games for like three Uh hours straight. Yeah, well, I don't know whether it was you or another writer out there who took pictures of all the LA Live stuff um, because for context and for people who haven't been out there, when we were there for the All-Star game I mean LA loves these like side of building advertisements these massive billboard type things and when we were there all of those buildings had different players on them. And it was actually kind of cool. You're walking around and you're, and you're like, well, there's Russell Westbrook, there's Giannis, there's LeBron, there's uh, and whoever, Harden. And now it's just all LeBron, which does take on a very culty feel to it. And um, no, There's no once- doubt. And they used to also be like movie actors, right? Like a lot of times they'd just be advertising whatever the big movie is. Like, oh, here's the new Star Wars, and it's like a 60-foot banner, right? Now it's yeah. like, no, no, sorry, Hollywood. Like you're, you're getting knocked down a peg to the LeBron <laughs> worshiping. One story about LA Live, though, it does hold a special place in my heart because – when I worked for Grantland like five years ago and I lived in LA, 
I would have to commute from Santa Monica every morning because the traffic was so bad and we worked East Coast hours. The only way I could get into the office without it taking like an hour and a half was for me to leave at 5.45 or 6 a.m. every that morning. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Just drive into the office. And so I smoked cigarettes at the time. So I have a lot of memories looking around LA Live, which for people who haven't been there is kind of like a tackier version of Times Square. And Times Square is already pretty tacky, but this is like even worse. And I would just be looking around smoking a cigarette at like 6.15 in the morning. And it was very dystopian looking at all the LA Live advertisements. Uh, But it was a a great time in my life, but those mornings were always a little rough for me. Um, Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was, it was, there were were great parts about that year and not so great parts. Um, But in general, the, the LeBron worship is interesting to me too, because, you know, Kobe jokes aside coming out of that Spurs game, I do wonder whether there's going to be a tipping point at some point. It probably wouldn't happen at any point this year because no matter how bad this season gets, there's always the hope of free agency. But I really do wonder whether instead of like a, a lunatic fringe of Lakers nation that still wants to call Kobe better than LeBron, whether like a majority of Lakers fans are going to turn somewhere along the line here and be like, you know what? This isn't actually that cool. And everybody needs to calm down. It's Um, a, it's a good question. Here's a related question. And I'm curious your answer. If you're a high profile free agent watching this unfold, are you more likely or less likely to sign with the Lakers next summer? It's a great point. Uh, I would lean less likely. Although look, the Lakers could also, what if you're Chris Middleton and you say, look, we're going to give you the max and bring you in here to be an elite kind of role player next to LeBron. Uh, Like to me, if you're Chris Middleton, that's pretty compelling. His Q rating would go up tenfold, even even if he's not kind of on the billboards in L.A., Sounds like a title to me. I mean, 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how we solve the Lakers problems. Um, Can I actually, can I, before we move on, can I give you one theory on why I don't think this is going to work in LA? Bring it on. Okay. It's it's not related to these first three games, but it is something that kind of crystallized for me over the weekend. And I should preface this by saying, I would never write any of this because it's too self-involved and ridiculous to put forth as serious analysis. Okay, so pause right there. Guys, if you're transcribing this for uh, SI.com, <laughs> you know, get your fingers cracked, you know, make sure you've got your oh, your, God. your transcription Listen. fingers ready to rock. Okay, go ahead and proceed. <laughs> go go ahead. Okay. So look, if you remember a few years ago, when we first started recording the podcast, it was during the 73-win Warrior season. And nobody should go back and listen to those episodes because I'm sure we were t- like half as good as we are now. Not that we're even that good now. But one of the takes that I had during that Warrior season was that Steph was the best player on earth. But as the season went on, I began to become convinced that LeBron was going to go win the title. And my reasoning at the time was that LeBron was one of the three best players ever, and that's how he would be remembered. But he needed a signature finals moment that nobody could ever argue with. 
And I like I went on and I wrote that in the magazine. We had to do an article where we all came up with reasons Golden State wouldn't win. And I said, because LeBron is amazing and this finals is what will secure his place in history forever. Um, so you remember all that, correct? Okay, you got something right three years ago. Continue. <laughs> okay. So now, with LeBron and his legacy and his place in history, I think we're going too far the other direction because there's a good statistical case to be made for LeBron as the best player of all time, and it's become popular to say that rings are overrated and the MJ narrative is overrated and we shouldn't get caught up in the mystique and saying that LeBron is the best player of all time is a way of expressing that you know you trust science and empirical data over mysticism and fake clutch genes and all of that and that's fine but personally I really don't think LeBron is better than Jordan and I think he plays in an era where stats are more important and he's tailored his game to make his numbers look unimpeachable. And, you know, he, the way he ch- selects his shots, are, that's it's not a mistake that his shooting percentages are great every year. And I think a lot of what LeBron has done in this era, Jordan could do nearly as well. Like if MJ played today, his numbers and efficiency would be even more ridiculous than they were 25 years ago. And ultimately, I, I just think MJ is slightly better than LeBron. And so where the Lakers come into play is if LeBron can find a way to make this work, I think he goes down as the greatest player ever, and there's not much debate. And by make this work, I mean win a title out there. But for the same reason I thought that he would win in 2016, what's up? Can we start with one win before we start talking title? They just need to win one game. <laughs> That's great. That's totally fair. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Because ultimately what I'm saying is that for the same reason I thought he'd win in 2016, I don't think he'll win in LA because being the undisputed greatest player of all time is not how LeBron should be remembered. I think he's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think this Lakers era is what will correct that narrative over the next few years. Like, this is sort of a ball-don't-lie situation in the same way that Warriors series was. No, lots of good thoughts in there. I mean, the Lakers era, you know, it's probably coinciding when he does finally exit his prime, right? And so I think guys always seem like they're most invincible and they're most historically important when they're at that apex, right? And I still think, like, to a large degree, even last season— we spent all of last season still in the afterglow of 2016 because the whole narrative was like, look, you, LeBron could beat Golden State by himself. Don't put anything past him. Like, you know, right. and whether or not that was true or not, and clearly he got exposed in the finals, but uh, I mean, he still was absolutely sensational in game one and, and nearly carried them to that win. Um, uh, you know, I, I just think that there will be a gradual distancing from that high peak and unless he gets serious help here i don't see another title in la right so um i hear what you're saying i'm also trying to envision what would mike look like if first of all no hand checking but second of all these freedom of movement rules where you can't bump him off the ball like the jordan rules that wouldn't even be a book and that'd be straight into the (laughs) trash can You, you wouldn't even be able to think of those things all these guys who made their names guarding mike over the years 
would would be you know on highlight videos of Mike putting up fifty every single night, and so exactly. And that's important context, right? I mean, when you point to LeBron's numbers and say, look, if you go by the numbers, he's already in the Jordan category and maybe better than Jordan already. And, you know, that may be true, but let's remember what Jordan was dealing with and how he would have translated to this era. Yeah, to me, the more impressive part about LeBron, it's not the raw numbers, it's the consistency and the longevity. I mean, those two things, basically nobody can really touch, at least in the modern era. And I also think everything he does off the court, both in the community and also as a player and understanding his leverage and exercising that power is like a huge part of what makes him revolutionary. And and that's going to be part of the story as well. Um, so anyways, it's just a thought that I had over the weekend and, and, and it's not related to him missing two free throws at the end of the Spurs game. I want to be very clear on that. No, it's a good thought. I'm also now trying to picture what it would be like if we could go to like a Michael Jordan version of this LeBron James LA Live experience and how that would basically be my version of <laughs> Disney World. Like totally. can you can you imagine it's just surrounded by Jordan billboards and like, you know, the catchphrases and his sneakers everywhere. That would be heaven. Well, let me tell you, Ben, I lived the tail end of Michael Jordan's career in DC and it was not great. So I'm glad that you won't have to deal with that experience. Um, I took that bullet for the both of us. Should we move on though? Should we touch on the, on the fight for a second? Let's do it. Okay. So Jonathan said, what are your thoughts on the Lakers rockets brawl and on court fights in general? This is a hot take, but I get annoyed when players throw punches It's just boring to me. None of the swings connect with any real force. And if they did, it would be a tragedy because someone would end up hospitalized. And worst of all, they stop play for 10 agonizing minutes while the refs review 10 different replay angles. And I like that take a lot because I I never really thought of NBA fights in those terms. And I, but it's true that like, Everyone groans because there's never any real fight. But then if Brandon Ingram had connected with Chris Paul, like that would have been awful. It would have been awful to to read weeks of takes about the whole thing. And so I'm glad that nobody actually like connected in that fight. Um, But I'm curious, like we haven't really talked that much. What was it like being there? No, it was pretty wild and wacky. I mean, you can imagine, I think the crowd kind of reacted almost like a real boxing match it was like blood 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 and like (laughs) mayweather's there and chris paul is just incensed and so i think that really set things off because people saw how hot he was and um i mean to me i guess i feel like maybe i've matured or at least gotten old because there was like a five-year stretch there where i was just at the ready at my computer you know ready to rip the videos of whatever little altercation and immediately send it to twitter and oh this is going to be hilarious and now when I see it, I had a very much like a LeBron response of like, okay, I'm going to half-heartedly separate this. I'm definitely not going to get involved in any way. And yeah. like you, I was pretty thankful that nobody connected. I mean, you know, growing up, like the whole Kermit Washington, uh, Rudy Tomjanovich punch is just always there in the back of your mind because, well, one in Portland, like Kermit Washington had a radio station. So I remember him like kind of apologizing for it like 30 different times on the air because it clearly kind of haunted him, you know, and, you know, obviously mm-hmm. it changed Tom Jonovich's life. 
So that's the worst case scenario. And when Brandon Ingram is flying in there from half court with fist cocked, like going at a defenseless Chris Paul, that's the first thing that I thought of. And uh, he was very lucky he didn't connect. Uh, Chris Paul was very lucky he didn't connect. And, you know, to go back to the Spitgate part of it, inexcusable <laughs> from Rondo, completely inexcusable. And the fact that he didn't own up to it and just admit what he did, the fact that he's, you know, he's tried to like dodge all questions about it. The fact that he, nobody really stood up for him, I think that kind of got swept under the rug a little bit. But you didn't hear a lot of people just standing up for like, Rondo, that's our guy. You know, he didn't do it. Like, it was just very much like, let's just pretend it didn't happen. Let's try to change the subject. Uh, you know, Luke Walton brought up the flagrant foul earlier in the game to try to like kind of shift the blame back towards the Rockets. Uh, yeah. I just wonder, like, what does LeBron think of Rondo spitting on Chris Paul? And then what does Rondo think of LeBron taking Chris Paul's side? I think that's a legit, not a hot take question. That's a legit personality conflict that got exposed during the second game of the season. Yes, coming out of game two, I'm definitely excited to see where that relationship goes. Because again, I think Rondo... Right or wrong, justified or not, does seem to have a lot of alpha qualities to him. And it's going to be interesting to see how long that capital lasts with LeBron. Um, Did you believe his explanation at all? Because I'm reading it here. It's Rondo. He says, this is the only time I'm going to address this. I had a mouthpiece in my mouth and I exasperated because I was about to tell him to get the F out of here. Um, I mean, that's a plausible explanation. I, to me, I'm still shocked that Rondo didn't get five or six games. And given how um, obvious Ingram's thrown punch was and given Ingram's role in starting all of this, I'm surprised that he only got four games. I would have expected like seven or eight for him. Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be more for both those guys. Uh, Chris was right away, around where I expected. Um they, yeah. It's always a bad sign when the in- instant reaction from Ingram is like, wow, I thought it was going to be worse. Like, that's how you know. <laughs> like, as totally. a legislative body, you, you were probably got these guys off too easy. Uh, I don't believe Rondo. No, this guy's got a track record going back a decade. You know, we've seen yeah. it time and time again. And I, I thought he was going to, you know, try to make it work here in LA a little bit longer than the second game of the season. But I don't know. It seemed like he was out there on an island by himself on that one. Yeah. Also, not a great look for my nephew, Brandon Ingram. And I really appreciated the flood of emails we got concerned for my nephew um, coming out of that fight. I mean, look, he, he to me, watching it, and I watched it delayed. I watched it um, two days later. He just, he looked like the kid who gets bullied in class and then one day he just snaps and goes crazy out of nowhere at a time that makes no sense. And it's not really cool when that happens. It's just weird. And that's how I felt watching Ingram. It was like, why are you so mad right now? It's It, it still doesn't really make any sense. He just flipped out on Harden and uh, it was not a good look for him. Yeah, I mean, I think some people were trying to spin it positively as like, that's the fire we've been looking for, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> which I can kind of see because he is such a mild-mannered guy. And look, to me, Ingram at his worst is not hot-headed, right? Because he's not going to be like that very often. 
I think yeah. Ingram at his worst is when he's floating. So I'm not defending his action in any way, but I do see where some people were coming from of like, well, you know, at least he's not out there like Wigginsing it up, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't have much more to say about the fight itself. I Apparently there was tension that spilled over into the stands among the wives and uh, Rondo's girlfriend was instigating something with Chris Paul's wife, I think, I, which... It's perfect that Rondo is dating a woman who will straight up fight your wife in the stands, but I don't know how much of those details are really mainstream, so I don't I don't know who to trust there. Yeah, and I think she was with like uh Chris Paul's wife was with LeBron's family. So again, you've got this like being stuck <laughs> between like the banana boat loyalties versus the Laker loyalties. It's just complex out here, but something to monitor. Yep. I know I, I and I would love to see LeBron just come out and say Lonzo should start. I mean, that would be a real bold move, but I think that's the the one positive takeaway from all of this that that should result is that Lonzo just starts. And they were probably just letting Rondo start because Lonzo's coming back from the knee injury and all of that, but you have to make that change at some point, and I would say now's a pretty natural time to do that. First of all, I think LeBron is probably that's not how he'll play it. More realistic is that Rondo is just going to show up one day in January and find out that he's been traded. <laughs> and that's how LeBron will kind of resolve this. Um, but So Rondo is the leading candidate to be waiters. Exactly. That, I was going to say the Dion yeah. waiters treatment. Um, we, we wondered who was going to get that. And uh, Rondo, out of left field candidate, but <laughs> zoom to the top of the leaderboard. Yes, out of left field, but in many ways, the clear best candidate. Um but after 45 minutes on the Lakers, let's move on to the rest of the league because there's been a lot of action everywhere. So I will start with Byron, who says, how come Danny Green doesn't get the credit that he deserves? He was treated like a toss-in with the Kawhi trade. I consider him an incredible piece for a championship team. Great defense, elite shooting, uh, listen, I will tell you what, Byron, the, the Raptors are a lot more interesting if Danny Green is going to continue to play this well. And I don't know how much I trust what we've seen through the first four games, but yeah, like if this is Danny Green, the reason people weren't talking about Danny Green in those terms is because he's been kind of a shell of himself for the last two seasons in San Antonio, but if Danny Green is going to be like 2015 Danny Green or 2014 Danny Green, that trade becomes a massive win for Toronto. Look, Byron, you don't have to lecture me about liking Danny Green. I think between myself and Rob, you've got two of his biggest fans on the planet. Um, the problem last year was that he was playing through injury and we just didn't know that. And I think he, yeah. he eventually revealed that at some point, like way after the fact. Would have been nice to know that before we did the top 100 ranking. But um I think that's a, a big part of why he looks so good here to start. But again, can he stay consistently healthy and firing like he is right now? I think that's a big question. And also, you know, be wary. Like Danny is a, a streaky shooter, right? Like he can hit seven three-pointers in a playoff game. There's no doubt. But there's also going to be games where he's not showing up quite to that same degree. So Byron just, you know, we've been there watching him for, you know, years in San Antonio riding this wave. Uh, don't pound your te- uh, chest too strongly about Danny Green uh, after his best nights. Yeah, how are you? How much of the Raptors have you seen thus far? Uh, uh, bits and pieces here and there. Um, 
they're they're playing well, and Kawhi's Kawhi's playing well too. I mean, I've been hearing from a lot of their fans, and guys, you know, this is why we call you termites because you never go away. And they're right back, Andrew, right where we thought they'd be, saying this is the best team ever. We're going to the finals. Kawhi's our best player ever. And, yeah. uh, you know, you just kind of have to quietly salute them and just nod and smile and say, all right, well, we'll, we'll see you in May. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I think it's time to declare at least a temporary ceasefire on Raptors fans because it's ultimately great how much they love their team. And I'm not going to spend the year trolling them. And most importantly, I love Kawhi as much as they do. I think where we had a, a little bit of a disagreement was coming into the season, I just didn't think Kawhi was going to be the same player. And I'd say if there's one thing I'm most excited about after the first week is Kawhi does kind of look like the same player. He's, I mean, he was rusty in the first game. Hold on. Isn't this a case of fool me once, fool me twice? Like, aren't you at least a little bit worried? Like, if you were actually a Raptors fan, wouldn't you be, like, guarding your heart against this amazing Kawhi comeback? Why? Because of his health? No, because of everything we've seen over the last 18 months. This guy's the flakiest superstar in the NBA. Um, yeah. I mean, if I were a Raptors fan, I would be buying into the idea that the Spurs medical staff had no idea what they were doing and Kawhi was just behaving as any rational superstar would and looking out for his own well-being. How much of that is true is still hard to know because we'll probably never find out what the hell the injury really was and and how much of it was just sort of a pretext to demand a trade. Like, it's tough to say. But all I know is that Kawhi in the first half of the Celtics game looked rusty and kind of out of sync. And that's the player I expected to see for at least like the first three or four months of the season. And in the second half of that Celtics game, it doesn't mean the Raptors are suddenly title contenders and there are a lot of kind of qualifiers we should put on to a mid-October showdown between the two best teams in the East. But Kawhi looked awesome. And he he was very close to the player we saw down the stretch in 2017. And if he's going to be that good, like... I, it does, we don't need to waste our time spending the next six months asking whether the Raptors are for real because I think Kawhi himself is just going to be a more interesting story. This is evidence of my theory of player tanking, by the way, because people like you who live in the moment are just so eager to forgive, <laughs> so willing to just wipe the slate clean. Oh, you had the worst possible year you could have. Oh, you're back. Let's just welcome you with open arms. Unbelievable, Andrew. I, look, I'm just saying Kawhi dominates in a way that is unlike just about anything else in the NBA. He's so methodical and... Uh, I don't know. I, I love watching him play. You can go read some. I wrote about it today. Um, go find it on Twitter. I wrote about Kawhi. The only other Raptors question I have is if this continues, I I mean, they do look very good. I don't think they're great yet. A lot of what they were doing against the Celtics was dependent on Danny Green and Serge Ibaka, two guys I don't totally trust. But... If they could go get Jimmy Butler for OG Anunoby and DeLon Wright, don't you do that deal? If we if if we make it to mid-December and the Raptors are the best team in the East, like why not if you're Maasai? 
So you're just going to have fights over the basketball and, and chemistry spoiled? I mean, are you playing fantasy basketball or no, real basketball here? I'm playing real basketball, and I'm saying if I'm Masai Ujiri, I'm ready to go win a title and go and really go after it. And uh, and I think if you add Jimmy, because you're, you're not going to convince me that the Raptors are better than the Celtics now. Or, well, they're better than the Celtics now, but I don't think by the time you get to May, they're going to be in better shape than Boston will be. But if you slide Jimmy Butler into that rotation, they get very scary. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I would do that trade, honestly. Like, I just think the fit there okay. is not super clean. But I, I hear what you're saying. I love the idea of Masai being super aggressive. And you know what else I love was Sportsnet's video, which was also super <laughs> aggressive. Have you ever seen anything like that? I mean, they had like a preseason hype video produced by like the official network that carries the Raptors games right yeah and they were basically lecturing Raptors fans about not being wimps and about like basically you know quote-unquote manning up or womaning up and just like being ready to move forward without DeMar like this is you know not time to have this underdog or like little brother mentality it was right in the Raptors fans faces I was was almost jealous like I'm the guy over here who's been kind of making fun of them for three years and I was like these guys went harder than I've ever gone yes a lot of real talk from the Sportsnet producers um I really enjoyed it and you know what it was a little too aggressive because last night when I was writing this Raptors column I went to find it and it has been removed from the internet by i don't know i guess the team didn't like it or whatever but they were taking shots at vince they were taking shots at bosh mcgrady and so in that sense i'm glad they took it off the internet because that was not a great look but um, oh, it was the best look they had video <laughs> clips of Dwayne and masai like yelling at each other after a game like it was really there was layers to it yeah uh, but no i think they should be very aggressive, but it's sort of like where they were a couple of years ago when they went to Giddy Baca at the deadline. And I felt the same way then is just keep trying to get over that hump. Like you're one of the few teams that can talk yourself into legit having a chance, right? And we look at Philly's start. If they're going to keep Markel Fultz and doing this, you know, charity case starting lineup thing, you can forget about them as a, a contender this season. That means it's a two horse race in the Eastern Conference. And you're right to point out that Boston's probably going to have a deep, a deeper and a you know, higher well of, of top end talent, you know, and that's mm-hmm. going to win out in a playoff series. But if you're Toronto, you're in buyer mode, no doubt about it, uh, you know, come February. And, and you, you just may don't like Jimmy at this point. No, I like Jimmy just fine. I just don't think it's a very good fit between him and Kawhi because I think both those guys need to have the ball. Lowry's already kind of making, you know, certain allowances with, uh, you know, Kawhi there. To me, it just, you know, becomes a situation where you can't keep everybody happy and then you don't need to introduce kind of negative energy or even questionable energy or I want to get paid energy into that locker room, right? Like you you want to have a smoother sailing. Okay, that's fair. Um, well, we'll check in with the Raps soon. Moving to the West, Hunter says, is Joe Ingles actually the best player on the Jazz? And Ben, I don't know how much of the Jazz you've seen. I think they're going to be very, very good this year. Joe Ingles has been a favorite of mine for quite some time, so I'm loving the success that he's having early. But I think what Hunter's implying is a real concern for Utah. It's not great that Joe Ingles has been the best player for Utah through the first week. And they're currently sitting at one and two and lost to the Grizzlies Monday night. 
Yeah, I mean, I, that sounds to me like a giant overreaction, and we're going to laugh about this in a, in a week. So yeah. just chill. That's, well, that's my okay. take. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair take. See, these early podcasts are, are, are difficult because everything is technically an overreaction. I would just say watching the Jazz, I mean, look, the Jazz nearly knocked off the Warriors in one of the best games we've seen so far. Um, and it was actually wild seeing how badly Golden State wanted that game. And if anything, I think that might be the most encouraging sign for Utah. Is like the Warriors took that shit seriously. And it was fun to watch Draymond going full tilt in game two. Um, that was a little bit of an upset. But the... Donovan Mitchell was not good down the stretch in that game, and um, and I think a lot of people have talked about him as if next Dwayne Wade is just a foregone conclusion, and we may see a little bit of a correction if he continues to struggle. And so, like that's a big variable for Utah. If 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 he can really take a step forward from what he was last season, then they are going to be a top three team in the West this start notwithstanding. But I would just kind of watch it closely because if he's the guy he was last year, he had a, a couple great games and a couple games where he just wasn't quite what they needed. And so that that is a more complicated story for this season. Yeah, there's a couple different teams I've got circled here. You know, we're talking about pace of play being up, scoring being up so high. It's like if you're Utah, your margin in terms of like playing style of trying to play slow and, and you know do all the things that Utah's done by winning games with defense for years becomes that much more difficult when the whole league goes so much further the other direction, right? So yeah, do they tough. wind up do they wind up being in a, a tricky spot where their formula no longer quite adds up and like maybe you know they need Mitchell on offense even more than they expected and if and if he's only good and not great that winds up you know leaving them a little bit further behind where they thought they would be that's just a team to watch on that front the other teams i'm kind of looking at are like the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers of the world where they came into this season being like you know what like forget about defense we're not (laughs) even going to be able to play defense but we think we've got some offensive players who are talented enough that we're going to be you know able to be in the sort of the playoff bubble mix for the Bulls and in the playoffs in the West just solely off the strength of the offense and if everybody's scoring if everybody's averaging 113 points a game does that formula work at all or do you wind up just being terrible and you know one other team I, I forgot to mention is the Thunder and their formula of like, all right, we're going to be really good on defense when Robertson's back and we're just going to ride, you know, our two man offense and no shooting as far as it's going to take us. Again, if everybody's averaging 113 points, if the Kings come into your building and put up a gigantic, you know, what, 120 plus points on you, uh, does your formula still work on the level that it did, say, even two seasons ago? You know, which of these teams basically are going to get left behind by this shift, uh, assuming that it sticks? It's just a key early season development to keep your eye on. Yeah, man. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the Thunder because I, I was thinking about it earlier today. Nobody in America is more grateful for the 0-3 Lakers start than the Thunder and Thunder fans who would have had to sort of sit through um, a week of hand-wringing over OKC's start. But instead, it's like nobody even notices that OKC is 0-3 and looks like a mess thus far and is counting on the return of Roberson, who who knows what he's going to be coming off of that injury. Um, so there are some very real questions there that we'll address at some point, I'm sure. Um, 
Do you want to talk about the Nuggets or the Kings right now? I would say the Nuggets because they have been it's them or the Pelicans is the story of the first week of the season. I mean, okay, granted I say that after talking about the Lakers for 45 minutes, but if we're saying like positive <laughs> positive stories, the Nuggets have been awesome. They did it even though they lost Will Barton to an injury. I think they've got the number 1 defense right now, which is just stunning. Uh, yeah. They got the head-to-head victory over Golden State, who you mentioned has been playing very tough here you know, early in the season, really going after wins in ways maybe they haven't in, in previous years. Um, you know, Denver taking them down and just the moxie from both Gary Harris and Jamal Murray, just like gunning, trying to like knock the uh, Warriors out late in that game, even though they were you know missing shots, frankly, and, and maybe <laughs> taking shots they shouldn't have taken, was just impressive to see their level of confidence. And then to me, Jokic is, I mean, I'm not ready to pencil him into the all-star team, but mm-hmm. I think he's going to be there this season. And like the Jokic versus Towns conversation that we had a month ago, I know where I'm standing now. I mean, that, that one doesn't seem that close. Yeah, I I agree with you there. I'm pissed off because I did not get to see Nuggets Warriors. So I only have so much to say on, on Denver thus far. Um but I'm really excited. It's good to it's good to hear that things are going well. Colby asked if Jokic is going to be an All Star, and yeah, I think like given how impressive he's been through the first week, like his numbers alone, he's he's gonna make it. And um, shout out to Karthik, by the way, who wanted some Kings love. De'Aaron Fox looks great. That's all that really matters to me. Um, and. We'll, we'll address the Kings somewhere down the line. But I think Denver is for real, and that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Kings, like, they got a career night from Shumpert, which, okay, good luck with that, <laughs> uh, to beat Oklahoma City. It was an impressive win. I think overall, though, their defense has just been rough, even by this year's standards, you know, across the league. Uh, been very unsightly and difficult to watch. So I'm not ready to uh you know maybe dive in head first to the king's hype like karthik was asking for but uh you know denver i think it, it's fair to wonder is this a home court team you know is this a top four seed can they win the northwest division uh you know can they push houston you know it's one of those situations where and they're not as talented as the rockets last year but they potentially come in this season with that same level of just uh, commitment and team energy like they yeah. they're so frustrated by being ninth in last year's postseason they take care of their coach with the extension so that question gets answer- answered they get Millsap back so they know exactly who their rotation is going to be they've got a bunch of young guys uh, like Hernan Gomez and Torrey Craig just energy guys who are going to do the little things that support what their stars do and then they've got an incredible trio with Jokic, Harris, and Murray, who are all looking like they could have career years this year together. That's Mm -hmm. a nice formula. It's also a nice formula for a big regular season wins total, assuming they can stay relatively healthy here. Um, And on top of all that, Andrew, these guys are really, really, really fun to watch play basketball. They're, I think I had them fifth or sixth uh, in terms of my uh, entertainment value rankings. I sold them short. Yeah, see, that's that's what I'm... (laughs) That's why I'm pissed off that I missed them Sunday night because I went to go see a movie and I missed Nuggets Warriors and, you know, shame on me. I, I'm excited to get some Nuggets in my life going forward here. Um, speaking of surprises, Barack says, 
Remember when my buddy Kyle said that Karis LeVert has more value than D'Angelo Russell? That take is looking better and better and better. Um, first of all, congrats to Barack, who also passed the bar in New York this week. The bar in New York is not easy to pass, so shout out to him. Um, and we've heard a lot about the Karis LeVert takes also. <laughs> I had a lot of mean opinions on the preview podcast someone keeps adding Karis Levert on Twitter uh, along with us yelling at us about how wrong we were I just want to be clear Ben you can go back and read my mock drafts I've always loved Karis Levert and I was lobbying hard for him to end up at Golden State my only point was that the rest of the league kind of rolls its eyes at Karis hype but he's been awesome through the first week of the season He's a, he's a classic case of a guy who I'm like, I don't know how real this is. Everybody seems to be dropping 30 a game right now. I don't know what the NBA is turning into, but he does look really good for Brooklyn. Yeah, he hit a game winner against a Knicks team that's barely in the league, so congratulations. <laughs> uh, and he's looked better than D'Angelo Russell, who should be playing in China. So, yeah, all right. Yeah, well, all what, right. what did we get wrong? I mean, come on. Why are we tripling down on Karis Lever? Who Who picks these questions? <laughs> Because I like Karis Liver. I like basically any player that comes through the Bayline pipeline. And uh, so uh, I'm still. Let me stop you right Karis. there. You always like every player, period. Whenever somebody has a breakout <laughs> four years after the NBA draft, you can check my mock draft. How many times have we heard that? Oh, man. That may be true. I do love almost every draft prospect. Um, but uh, speaking of which, the draft prospects thus far. Look like that top five kind of feels like the 2003 draft right now because Doncic, Trey Young, Jaron Jackson, and Aiden all look very good. Granted, they're probably not four Hall of Famers like 2003, and then Bagley kind of feels like the Darko of the group. Um, but it's it's the draft class looks great so far, better than I would have expected. Yeah, well, this is what was better than I expected. Uh, the over-under on how long it took for Ben Falk on cleaning the glass to break down DeAndre Ayton's terrible defense was six days. <laughs> Much faster than I could have even hoped for. I mean, it's been really, really rough. I know you were at a movie or, or doing whatever else it is that you do. I don't know if you saw Trey Young's 35-11 and 11, uh, the other night. Again, this is another one of these situations where these inflated statistics have me a little bit nervous, but the only other rookie since 2000 to put up 35 and 10, Steph Curry and LeBron James. So for the guy who really should have been on Trey Young was the number one pick bandwagon the whole way, I hope that that little factoid makes you smart just that much more. He looks really good man and again you don't want to get too high after a couple games in the first week of the season but uh i'm really excited to see where this goes i mean the hawks are still kind of awful and i don't know how much we can read into anything that anyone does against cleveland's defense because they are just a total mess and a lot of guys there are step or two slow just like they were last year except lebron's not there um Ty Lue I'm not sure he knows how to coach defense at this point um but regardless watching those Trey Young highlights was awesome and I think that's that's what we're going to be taking from this Hawks season nobody's going to necessarily sign up for a full Hawks game but we're going to be getting like 
three to four good minutes of ridiculous Trey Young shit out of every Hawks game. Yeah, I don't know how many Hawks fans are out there, but I guarantee all of them are cackling when they're watching what Dennis Schroeder is doing in Oklahoma City so far (laughs) (laughs) compared to what Trey's been doing in Atlanta. I mean, you know, we, we always talked about like, addition by subtraction for the thunder with that uh, Carmelo Anthony trade I still think shooters got a chance to work out okay in Oklahoma City once Westbrook's back healthy and 100% and so forth but not having him in Atlanta so that it's just Trey's show was one of the smarter things that uh, anybody did and they they took a lot of crap because they have to buy out Melo and all that stuff too but just clearing the deck for Trey made some sense now you can argue about the the trade parameters did they get enough for shooter and all that but it was the right move philosophically. Exactly, exactly. There was a lot of hand-wringing over the Hawks not getting enough value for Schroeder. And as someone who watched that dude more than I care to admit over the last few years and watched him in a playoff series and watched the way his teammates interact with him, I mean, like, people who actually knew the Hawks were like, yeah, just get rid of him. I mean, maybe Trey Young will be good, maybe he won't be, but, like, Dennis Schroeder is not the answer. So... I never really understood the, the the worries about how much value they were getting for him. Um, the other note, we're just going through the whole league right now. You watched Bucks Knicks last night, right? Did you see any of it? I saw portions of it. The stretch, I mean, I saw Chris Middleton take over and just, I mean, talk about a superstar stretch from Chris Middleton. I mean, poor Enos Cantor <laughs> just getting abused play after play after play. I think what Chris have like 75 points on 12 shots, something like you that know, last night. I mean, it's unbelievable how well he's played so far this season. Yeah, it, it was a really big night for Team Golliver between the Patty Mills game winner and Chris Middleton going off to take over the fourth quarter against the Knicks. Um, it Aside from the Bucks side of that game, though, the Knicks are in an amazing place right now. I mean, they were running, like, clearouts for Mario Hazonia for several minutes of that fourth quarter, and it was, like, Hazonia alternating with Tim Hardaway Jr. pull-ups, and they're, they're playing really hard, and I just think this could end up being one of the most beloved Knicks teams of the last 20 years, just because they're going to be entertaining and they're also going to reliably tank and lose like 55 or 60 games this season. It kind of goes back to what we started this whole podcast off with is like, does everyone win if scoring is up? Like if you're a terrible team, but you're entertaining and you try hard and you can score every once in a while. And like, you have a guy like Tim Hardaway, who's always a threat to go for 40 or as Jay ski likes to predict 50 points. Uh, does that give your fans, is that better for your fans than like watching the Orlando magic from three years ago? Uh, if you're, if you're a good team, you know, then now you can tell yourself you're a contender because scoring is way up. If you're an average team, you're more excited to go to the games because somebody might score 40. If you're a great team, you feel like the greatest team of all time. I, I just wonder, are we all getting kind of sucked into this intoxicating scoring boom? Yeah, it could be. And maybe that's why the NBA has been kind of gaming the system to produce these outcomes. Um, I'm sure the league is not fighting it. Uh, all right. No, let's... On the contrary, the league is making rules that you can't touch anybody <laughs> anywhere on the court. If you try to touch a team, somebody, it's a foul. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions here, and then we'll close out. John says, I have a very important Blazers question. Why did Sauce Castillo steal Steve Blake's look, and is it the key to his success? John, I don't know if 
Stauskas actually looks like Steve Blake. This may be a case of some sort of racism. Um, but... Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> well, no, look. Look, all white guys on the Blazers look alike, whatever. And they, the, the big man especially. Um, the big men, I mean. Stauskas looking awesome is one of those things that I'm afraid to jinx. But that, I mean, this could definitely just disappear after three weeks. But... Watching him show out for Portland has been fantastic. I love that he's relevant. He's a guy I would have expected to, to be out of the league at this point, but uh, he's been great. Yeah, I mean, Myers Leonard and, and Zach Collins, they could be the Winklevoss twins up there for the front line. But <laughs> exactly. uh, Sas Castillo going shot for shot with LeBron on opening night was a magical moment. I had all these Portland media members come up to me and say, hey, if you were at Blazer's Edge, you would have written 5,500 words about that Sas Castillo performance. <laughs> they were 1,000% correct. There's no doubt about it. Um, they've Portland's looked a little bit deeper than people expected. They've gotten more yep. from their second unit than I definitely expected. And, and we'll see how that, uh, you know, shakes out over the course of a season. But, uh, you know, Stoskis is on like his fourth team already. So for him to be able to, you know, pull together, you know, something resembling a career here, it's a big win for him. But speaking of Steve Blake, he's now back with the Blazers for the 17th time. He's not playing. I think he's in some sort of a coaching or advisory role. So okay. he was there on opening night overseeing the Sas Castillo experience. So if you want to give anybody credit for it, I, we could probably say it was Steve Blake's direct influence. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what's happening. Steve Blake had a very distinct look to him. He had a very angular face. I think Stauskas just kind of looks like an average white guy. But uh, it's awesome that he's still doing his thing because what happened with Stauskas is he had like a week when he first got to Brooklyn where he looked really good and then it just kind of faded from there. Um, And I thought that was going to be his last real shot, but the Blazers needed bench guys. I think Seth Curry is going to end up helping them a lot as the year goes on. And Zach Collins is another guy who has been pretty impressive. And that, that was one where like people were getting excited about him midway through last year and i thought it was just like blazers fans like an echo chamber gone wrong but uh he's pretty nifty like he moves really well yeah no doubt i mean he projects as the long-term starting center for them to me i mean i don't know how long it's going to take maybe by next year or the year after but yeah um, that that's the track that he's on and he, he moves very well like you said defensively and he should be a, a stretch five type guy on offense so you know it's uh it's just a matter of time for him if you look at their other big men they've had in the pipeline he is the most close to what you're really looking for than they've had in years and years and years you know they're trying to make it work with Nurkic and I think he's still the short-term answer but you go back at their other center positions whether it's Robin Lopez JJ Hickson Myers Leonard <laughs> lots of these guys were even Channing Fry when he was in Portland they're just weird fits they kind of throw you off of what you want to do and I, I think for where the league's going how Portland specifically wants to play with their guards in, in the three-point shooting attack uh, and Collins's mobility makes him a, a very clean fit if he continues to grow yeah, don't forget the Joel Prisbilla era in Portland. Well, now, he's another Blazers legend. Like, Prisbilla, <laughs> I think they called him the Vanilla Gorilla, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, at Best one point. nickname in the league. 
yeah, him and Blake, w- w- they should probably have their jerseys retired. Like, it's kind of a joke how many jerseys the Blazers have retired. Uh, but those guys should both probably be honorary jersey retirement uh, guys at some point. Yeah, cult heroes. Um, the other side of Blazers-Wizards last night, we got an email from Ian who said, this is for Andrew. As a fellow Wizards fan, I've had to wince as you've fallen out of love with John Wall these last few years. Ooh. I'd like to invite you to comment on how good he looks so far this season. He's defending as well as he ever has, and he's putting up great numbers. Most important, he looks great physically. You body shamed the hell out of him multiple times this summer, saying he looked fat last year. Can we get some recognition that he put in the work and is coming out balling? Um... I'm in a strange place with the Wiz, Ben, because I got to tell you, even going into game one, I was a little uneasy and like I got on the subway to go down to the stadium. It was just like, I, here we go again. I will see see where this leads. And then I saw Dwight Howard on the bench and was like, I don't want to see him out on the court and have to really go through this and cheer for him. Um, and then John Wall, I... To answer Ian's question, John Wall is playing really hard. He's He gives a shit on defense, and it's been fun to watch him stay engaged. I think there's a couple things that I wish he would do a little differently. He's still like dribbling the air out of the ball and um, dominating the offense at times in ways that isn't very productive. And I think like last night, the best thing, the best play he made all night long was give the ball to Bradley Beal at the end of the fourth quarter to to send that game to overtime and having seen John Wall for the last year like I was positive that he was going to take that shot and try to be the hero but I think if he can understand that he's best when he's distributing and doing a lot of the little things and letting guys like Otto Porter and Bradley Beal score like that's that's the best recipe for the Wizards um but in general last night in the first quarter of Wizards Blazers I hit a breaking point where I'd been frustrated with the team. I was fully expecting them to lose that Portland game. And Jan Mahinmi in the first quarter of that game took a corner three and hit the side of the backboard. And it was it was like an epiphany. It was like a spiritual experience for me because I was watching it and I was like, you know, screw it. I don't care about any of this. Let's just see how weird this gets. Let's lean into the spin here and just... Love this season for what it is and stop trying to worry about what the Wizards can do better and just see where it goes. Just another modern big improving his team spacing <laughs> with the outside threat. Yeah, it I wanted to get terrible. Andrew Sh- Sharp reports like 30 second breakdown of how you would be acting today if they hadn't won that game. Like, where would your mind have been at? Like, how deep and dark if Washington was one of like the five remaining teams that was 0 3? If they hadn't pulled out that game, and by the way, very impressive late game showing from them. I mean, yeah. Markeith Morris, the the wall pass to Beal that you highlighted was phenomenal. His shot making on that shot was great too. Where would you be had they not pulled that out? How dark? Well, I don't know though. I I really don't know because I mean what I say. We're like halfway through that game. I I was just like you know it's gonna be what it's gonna be (laughs) and I can't change any of this and so I was in a good detached place although down the stretch like once it became clear that the Wizards really had a shot to steal that game and it was important because starting 0-3 they go to Golden State Wednesday night I it was 
a loss in Portland did not bode well for what was possible in Washington this year. And so I did start to really care. And it it would depend on how they lost the game. If they lost the game with John Wall pulling up from like 26 feet and bricking a potential game-tying shot, <laughs> this would have been a much darker conversation. But look, credit to Wall. He cares this year he's locked in and he seems to be capable of adapting and evolving so i'm excited the season is not over yet you remind me of every michigan football fan during the brady hoke era like the emotional detachment don't put that on me (laughs) i think there's some real real parallels to be drawn between scott brooks and brady hoke but uh i think having emotional distance in general is a positive thing for you. I think that would be good for your health. You won't relapse and start smoking cigarettes again and wander <laughs> around downtown alleys at 6.15 in the morning. And this is good. Yeah. And hey, how about our Michigan Wolverines? Okay. I started the year dead last in my wins pool and on the strength of Michigan and LSU, I've now tied for first. So let's keep this going. Yeah, let's do keep this going because, Andrew, I went down to the deep south and you thought I was there on like a self-improvement civil rights tour. In fact, I was scouting our opponent for the national title game. (laughs) We want Bama. We want Bama. Let's go. (laughs) All right. Um, Last question. Paul says, hey, guys, I'm a friend of Sports Illustrated's Chris Chavez. He's our Olympics writer and and track and field expert. And, uh, And Paul says... If you guys could clone a player... Wait, 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 wait. Are you letting people just name drop their way (laughs) into the rundown of our podcast, Andrew? Is that what's happening? No, this was the source of great debate within the New York office at Sports Illustrated. And so several people (laughs) wrote to me and asked to include it in the podcast. I don't totally understand the question, but... I think you've heard it before from Matt Dollinger, the senior editor. And so Paul says, if you could clone a player 11 times to fill out an entire 12-man roster, all with that same player, who's the worst player in the NBA who could beat the current version of the Warriors? So do you have a thought here, Ben? Have you thought about this? I've got many thoughts. First of all, the the 12-man thing, that's... A lark, okay? You're, you're going to play eight guys in a playoff series. So <laughs> you really only have eight versions of this person. Uh-huh. Um, the key to keep in mind is that like 12 centers or 12 point guards or, you know, in this scenario, eight centers or eight point guards are never going to be able to do it, right? You have to have the all-around player who can get by well enough defensively, rebound well enough, score well enough, and play make well enough to keep up with Golden State's excellent chemistry and remember in this scenario it's a hypothetical so we're giving golden state perfect health so there's no andre iguodala injury halfway through that series right so yep to me the level of player has to be really really high to be able to make up for uh, golden state's experience advantages their chemistry advantages and so when i went back to the top 100 i think the lowest ranked player who would be able to fulfill this criteria would have been Kawhi Leonard at number 12, your fantasy basketball team captain, your new favorite player, the guy you've already forgiven for the San Antonio experience. I think if you had eight Kawhi Leonards against the Warriors rotation in a seven-game series, Kawhi Leonard would be able to make it very interesting and possibly win it. Wait a second. That's giving the Warriors 
a lot of credit. You're basically saying you need eight MVP candidates to make it interesting against Golden State. Come on. Golden State is great. There's no denying that. But I that team is rarely hitting on all cylinders. And Andrew, at some they, point, they rarely lose in the playoffs if they're healthy. We're giving them perfect health here. They, they went 16-1, 16-2. I mean, come on. They, they haven't played a team that is anywhere near their level. And I just think if they do, some of the chemistry issues are going to become more relevant. I mean, KD and, and Steph... They still haven't quite worked out that relationship uh, on the court. It's not a problem off the court, but I think it's it's an issue. Whereas eight versions of Kawhi Leonard would have perfect chemistry. You know, none of them really. No, they'd all want to shoot, and they wouldn't be able to (laughs) to play make for each other. What's your answer? Um. All right. So my initial answer was Paul George, and I think that's partly because I hold Paul George in lower esteem than than most people. I think he's like the 20th best player in the league, not necessarily They'd wipe top him off 15. the court. They'd I, wipe Paul George off the court. His shot selection, come on, Andrew. Yeah, that's true. His shot selection would be an issue. Can I throw a wild card in there? Okay. I think Bradley Beal would have a real <laughs> no shot. No way. He Dude. would. Dude, Bradley Beal has a low center of gravity. He can hang on defense if people are trying to post him up. And then if you've got five Bradley Beals on the court, you there's always going to be a Bradley Beal open, and he could do some real damage. Okay, I've got four words for you. Finals MVP Damian Jones, okay? If he's being guarded <laughs> by Bradley Beal on these pick and rolls, he's averaging 60 points a game, shooting 30 for 32 from the Dude, field. Dude, you could leave Damian Jones in an empty gym and he would not score 60 points. No disrespect to Damian Jones. He's good at well, a lot you of are, things. Well, <laughs> you are leaving him in an empty gym because you're having Bradley Beal guard him and, and Bradley Beal providing the help defense Look, from the weak side. Do not underestimate a low center of gravity I'd, i would also nominate your guy chris middleton as a as a candidate to potentially uh screw with the warriors machine if you <laughs> replicate him eight times i like how you said how you say don't waste four extra cloning uh missions or whatever on this experiment anyways this is all well, you're, gibberish <laughs> you're, you're getting closer with middleton because he can shoot he can handle pretty well he can defend one through four okay and he'd probably be able to get by on the five if uh if they went small but still i mean let's not underrate draymond i mean we're talking about golden state at its full f- force and fury i think you're underrating them overall in terms of what they're capable of because i'm also expecting them to finally rise to the occasion rather than like play down to their level of competition like if they went into the finals and they knew they had to face eight Kawhi Leonard's you would be getting finals MVP Steph finals MVP KD and Draymond playing on 11 you know what I mean yeah well I'm also underestimating how difficult it becomes when you try to guard 610 players with 64 65 wings um I'm sure there would be complications I don't know I it what you're describing there on a serious note is why I hope it comes together for the Celtics this year. Uh, they've been off to a shaky start. Hopefully they can kind of smooth some of these edges out because it would be really cool to see Golden State face a team that can at least kind of match them wing for wing and push them to get to a, a higher plane because we haven't seen it so far. 
the more I'm thinking about this, I think LeBron, Davis, Giannis, Kawhi, those might be the only four guys I'm sure if we clone them eight times could beat the Warriors in a series. Past yeah. that, I don't know. I that might take Golden State. I know that's like incredibly hyping, but I might. Yeah. Okay. Um, fair enough. Last last note here from Andrew, who says, For two years I've been firmly entrenched in Sharp's camp. We both value volume shooting, contested pull-ups, and senseless isolations. But when Andrew complains about long podcasts, I question his commitment to the ideology because what is a podcaster's version of chucking endless contested mid-range shots in garbage time? It's pumping out hours of audio each week with no regard for quality of content. Whoa. Please be the bucket getters of the podcast world and keep those 90-minute podcasts coming. And Ben, I think we're right at the 90-minute mark, uh, which is just to say that if you ever want me to do anything, guilt trip me about betraying my bucket getting principles and uh, I will cave pretty quickly. Look, Andrew, if these teams are going to be scoring 140 points, we got to be doing 140 minutes. <laughs> it's a bucket getter's world these days, you know? I can't argue with that. Uh, we're, the, we're the fat levers of the podcast world, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> For better or worse. All right, man. I will talk to you later in the week. Get back to Staples, you know? This is weird for you. You live there now. So go, go back home, and uh, we'll connect on Friday. No, no question about it. And everybody, go ahead and email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Just so you guys know, Andrew was whining last night about how many great emails he had to sift through because they've been overwhelming. Keep punishing, Andrew. I want to hear more and more whining from him about how he's going to cut down all this great content that you guys are helping us supply. And also, go to Apple Podcasts or the world-famous radio.com to check out uh, our feed. And also, please, give us those five-star reviews. We really appreciate it. Hey, Andrew, until later this week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.